This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shin. As the war continues in Israel and Gaza, humanitarians are working to deliver aid across the region. Gaza is bearing the brunt of the current humanitarian crisis as food, water, medical aid, and other basic necessities are in short supply. Humanitarian aid starts with addressing those basics and later addressing mental health needs and the survived trauma of the millions displaced. Connecticut is home to some major players in the humanitarian aid space, and there are several workers still stationed in Gaza and Israel. Two leaders of those organizations will join us to talk about what's happening overseas. But before we hear from them, joining us now is Nathaniel Raymond. He is the executive director of the Humanitarian Research Lab at the Yale School of Public Health. Nathaniel, welcome to where we live today. Good morning. And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Nathaniel, I want to start this conversation by asking, what are some of the biggest challenges happening in the West Bank and Gaza that you're seeing right now? The number one challenge in Gaza is access. And in any crisis, uh, access is really the determining factor on the success of humanitarian aid operations. And here we have unimaginable access issues in terms of getting personnel and supplies, most notably food and water, into Gaza. But access also matters in terms of being able to get civilians out of harm's way. And right now, access in both directions, access to bring supplies in and personnel in and access to evac civilians out is almost impossible. And I want to get deeper into that in a little bit, but I want to uh, follow up quickly, too, is was there already a humanitarian crisis in Gaza before this current conflict? Has an already bad situation gotten worse and exacerbated by what's going on today? That's a critical question. Uh, As someone who's worked closely over the years with the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, which is the main humanitarian organization in Gaza and the West Bank, even before the events of October 7th and Israel's response, uh, Gaza was in a state of precarity. The majority of all civilians in Gaza were reliant on the UN for basic humanitarian needs, uh, ranging from food to water, to uh, educational assistance, work programs. So when the Israeli response to October 7th occurred, you already had a population that was you know, well over three quarters entirely reliant on UN assistance. And so you mentioned first that one of the number one critical challenges is access for supplies and it's both in and out. And uh, what are some other challenges that you're seeing in terms of what's going on in in Gaza and in the West Bank? As someone who's been a humanitarian aid worker now for 24 years, the Gaza situation is, I can tell you, the number one scenario you don't want to be in as an aid worker, and you are making the number one choice you don't want to make. So the reason why this is the worst scenario for uh, aid workers to operate in is that you you are basically uh, under constant bombardment and you are having to make impossible balance of consequence choices 
in a dense urban environment where the types of injuries you're seeing are extremely complex. And so there's burn injuries, there's crush injuries, there's shrapnel. And so you you are having to make decisions about whether to stay or go. You know, we call it the clash decision, referring to the clash song. Should you stay or should you go? And at this point, organizations like Doctors Without Borders, et cetera, are having to make impossible choices about pulling staff out because of diminishing returns and increasing risk. Um, for UNRWA, for the United Nations teams on the ground, they live there. Uh, the overwhelming majority of UNRWA staff are beneficiaries of aid themselves, and they are Palestinians in Gaza. And so UNRWA so far has la- lost at least 60 personnel, and those are Palestinian national staff. And so we've also been talking about, and I feel like this is sort of an, an area that that perhaps readers don't necessarily think about is a lot of people would like to leave, but they can't leave, they can't move. So you're dealing with a population that may want to leave, but don't have the infrastructure or the transportation or even just the access to to leave. So can you talk about how that real aid intervention here is like? So international humanitarian law, uh, in particular the Geneva Conventions, uh, protects the right um, of civilians to flee conflict, and they, it creates an obligation for all parties to a conflict to allow civilians to leave an area which is being attacked. And so in this scenario, we have civilians not being able to be fully let out of the area that they're in, and we have also restrictions on personnel and supplies being able to get in. And that's the worst scenario. And then add on to it an urban environment. And so we're in a situation now where civilians are in an area that's basically the size of 100 central parks. It's almost identical in size to the municipality of Las Vegas. And so it's about 25 miles less than a marathon distance uh, long and about three to seven miles uh, across. And so it's an extremely dense area with the population density of Hong Kong in an area the size of Las Vegas. And it's in that environment that you have civilians unable to get out. And then you have this, the what we call the space um, available for aid operations is almost non-existent with at least eight hospitals struck so far. And so even just within the last couple of minutes, we've talked about so many challenges and just incredible situations that the people and the aid workers are in. So when it comes to providing aid in places like Gaza and the West Bank, where there's so much need, how do you prioritize what do you address first? In a less uh, urgent situation, we would be spending more time to do assessment of needs. And we do that through a variety of standardized methods, particularly as it relates to nutrition and and other uh, really basic needs. Uh, But in this case, it's down to uh, really impossible triage decisions where, you you know, the main thing now is about trying to uh, prevent secondary effects, meaning a cholera outbreak 
in a, a place where people are now crowded together and there's extremely poor what we call wash water sanitation and hygiene so we're, we're focused on how do we prevent secondary effects because in war of uh, more civilians die actually from cholera and uh malnutrition and exposure than from bombs and bullets now in this case the primary uh casualty um and the primary uh, impact factor is bombardment and so it's basically how do we keep medical services basic emergency medical services going while the people providing them are under attack and prevent a that secondary effect of cholera it, both of those right now are almost impossible tasks the higher function in terms of shelter livelihoods um none of that's possible right now well and you mentioned that there are standards that you work with so are there different philosophies in different fields of thoughts or have different fields of thoughts when it comes to humanitarian aid and what should be prioritized and focused on i'm de- i'm assuming it depends on the situation the scenarios it, it does depend on the scenario what you would do in the aftermath of an earthquake is not the same thing that you would do in a protracted primarily rural conflict in africa and what you do in an urban conflict in the middle east um in this scenario where it's constant bombardment means a different set of needs and so we we have standards for how we make these decisions and one of the core sources of that is called sphere which is the minimum technical standards for humanitarian work and we additionally coordinate through something called the clusters where basically we have organizations that may be different groups work together in thematic areas so there's a nutrition cluster the water cluster um and that's why we coordinate and we have talked about the challenges of of basic necessities getting food water shelter fuel and also the hospital infrastructure and whether or not they can provide those needs as well but can you also talk about the emotional and psychological pressure that many are facing and how do you go about addressing that especially as bombardment is still happening you know things are still happening there's so much unknown you know what can be done there right now uh humanitarian personnel uh are just trying to stay alive uh as i mentioned before uh the responders uh themselves have their families in harm and so there there's currently no psychosocial support available for uh aid workers uh, or most importantly for civilians and how has information technology and communication being impacted i think that's that's another very important sort of situation that we need to have to get the information to have this conversation but we've also seen that that has been cut off so how has that been impacted so far there's almost no communication coming out except for satellite phone what's known as uh bgans or codants basically satellite transmitters things like starlink and so right now there's no commercial cell um reliable on the ground and it's moving in almost entirely out of satellite communications 
And so with communications being cut off there, I think we here in the United States are seeing a different kind of communication where we have so much information out there, especially with social media. Can you talk about if social media has changed how we collectively think about humanitarian crises, especially since we can now see it unfolding in real time? Uh, Social media has changed everything about how response happens and how the crises themselves unfold in the political space. Uh, And that has implications uh, for what's happening on the ground. Uh, The main negative impact is the misinformation and disinformation, including deep fakes that are happening online, where people uh, are not believing information um, about uh, specific incidents. And that's why credible humanitarian organizations are now so important in the age of social media, because we allow there to be a credible source of ground truth information. So organizations like UNICEF right now are providing the only real numbers about kids that have been wounded or killed. Um, Organizations like Red Cross are providing the only real information that you can trust uh, about access. And so humanitarian agencies in the age of social media are now becoming critical information validators. Uh, The other negative effect of social media is that there's, with that noise, even when there isn't misinformation, disinformation, uh, it becomes very hard to pull the signal out of that noise to figure out uh, confirmed incidents and events to try to assess where aid needs to go. And so social media has given us some advantages, but it's also significantly complicated the operational environment, but it's made our work even more important. Right. And just to add more complications to to the already complicated layers of, of need. And I know we talked about earlier that doing this humanitarian aid work is incredibly challenging already, and workers can only be supported in a limited way as they're still dealing with what's going on. Can you talk about can they be supported or will they be supported maybe after, especially given the mental health toll that this takes and the fact that many of them have their families alongside them? Yeah, for the majority of the aid workers in this response, they are Palestinians responding to Palestinian needs in their neighborhoods with their families. And so we're talking about uh, at least 60 approximately UNRWA personnel have been killed. And I I probably have trained with or trained some of them. And you're also talking about workers where their families may be dead as well. And so that is an entirely different psychosocial support requirement than uh, outside aid workers who go into a critical incident and then come out. Um, That's the minority of what we're talking about here in Gaza. So really the psychosocial support services are not about aid workers. They're about people who are surviving uh, near constant bombardment. Just to put it in perspective, last year globally, we lost 117 aid workers. Uh, We've lost 50% of that amount in three weeks just in Gaza. That is certainly a very tough perspective, I think, for a lot of us to digest, especially as we're having this conversation, this very important conversation. I want to ask you some final thoughts is what do you hope our listeners get from this conversation today? I One thing, 
And I just want to thank you all for having this conversation because it's the most important conversation we can really be having right now is that independent, professional, international humanitarian organizations really matter. Professional organizations really matter in impossible situations like Gaza. And I know uh, it's confusing right now about where to give money and where to focus. And so when in doubt, I'll give you a tip. Um, what I want you to take away here is that when you don't know who to support, uh, go to the United Nations Central um, Emergency Response Fund, known as the SURF. And that is a great place when you don't know who to give to in complex political uh, situations. When you give money to the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, when you give money to the SURF, they're able to move that money uh, where it needs to go very effectively. They know better than we do. And so uh, I think the main thing right now is that responders who are trying to get access and trying to get people in and people out, they need really flexible cash right now. And that if you feel helpless, you don't know what to do, um, give the United Nations uh, flexible discretionary money, even a small donation, and that's going to help on the access side. Well, thank you very much, Nathaniel, for that tip. I bet that will be extremely helpful for many of us who want to help the situation but don't know how. Uh, thank you so much for that. You've been listening to Nathaniel Raymond, who is the executive director of the Humanitarian Research Lab at the Yale School of Public Health. Thanks, Nathaniel, for helping us understand the situation better today. Thank you for having me on. And coming up next, we hear from the president of AmeriCares. It's a humanitarian aid organization based here in Connecticut. This is where we live. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. This week, the Connecticut Mirror reported that some state lawmakers are calling for a humanitarian pause to allow more aid into Gaza. Today, we're talking to humanitarian organizations working in the region, providing aid to those affected by the war. And joining us now is Christine Squires. She's the president and CEO of AmeriCares. Thank you so much, Christine, for being with us today. 
Thank you for having me. Good morning. And for our listeners, you can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Christine, you've been following the conversation with Nathaniel as well. Can you respond to what he has to say? Anything that resonated with you or anything that jumped out to you? So much resonated. Um, You know, first, I want to say that the situation is absolutely dire. Uh, there's so much need, including basic life-saving medication, clean water, food, shelter. You, know, you asked about where to prioritize and also about the um, coordination with humanitarian organizations. And AmeriCare's, our focus is on health. And uh, we see that the immediate impact of this, uh, this situation is going to have damage both physically and mentally to the people in the region. What we're doing at AmeriCare's is we have a response team Um, that is working around the clock to increase access to medicines, medical supplies, and also longer-term mental health support for survivors. We also have our team that are pre-positioned in Egypt, um, and they're looking to transport essential medicines into Gaza, um, and they're facilitating shipments across the Rafah border. So, um, you know, the the complete... um, the, the direness of the situation does resonate with me and also including we talked about you know the physical health needs and then also the mental health needs especially of frontline workers and so can you give us an idea of i know you mentioned a little bit just now but what does your work look like in gaza can you talk about the ready respond and recovery model that your organization does you know what does that look like and where are you right now yeah absolutely so um are ready respond recovery. So we actually work in emergency situations all over the world for over 40 years. Um, ready is being prepared or having things at the ready, whether they're medicines, medical supplies, or other needs. Um, responding is responding and understanding, assessing the immediate needs. And then recovery is longer term. And that does focus a lot on the mental health support that's needed from people who have experienced just horrific trauma. Um, From the readiness perspective, we are preparing a shipment of essential medicines designed to treat 100,000 people for three months, and that's planned for Gaza. It includes surgical supplies, bandages, antibiotics, oral rehydration salts, and then also things that are like medication for hypertension, asthma, and other chronic health conditions that are going to continue to get worse over time. So it's understanding from our experience what the immediate needs are, and then also preparing for the longer term, because this is obviously going to be a protracted situation. And we, of course, been hearing a lot about the humanitarian efforts happening in Gaza and the West Bank, and your, but your organization is also focusing the efforts happening in Israel. So can you give us an idea of what that looks like? Sure, yes, we're responding in both Gaza, Gaza, excuse me, and Israel with local partners. In Israel, we're focused on supporting volunteer emergency medical teams and a mental health hotline. And we also are providing funding for essential household supplies for those who are displaced within Israel. So um, so that is our, our focus there. And as we've heard from Nathaniel earlier, he talked about this disaster or how this disaster is so enormous, unlike anything we've ever seen. Can you talk about that recovery effort of just how long it's going to take to rebuild because it feels so overwhelming? Yeah, it is absolutely overwhelming. And, and you know, there's really of, of this of this magnitude. And, and you know, as Nathaniel mentioned, um, uh, the crowding of, you know, a population over 2 million people, um, 1.5 million of those who are displaced, they're in temporary shelters. And the other other piece about sort of long-term recovery, 
um, that was mentioned is that the spread of disease, infectious disease with mass displacement overcrowding. We're already seeing and hearing reports of diarrheal skin diseases in shelters, and there's not access to water and sanitation services. So, you know, right now we've got we've got to be able to meet, try to meet these immediate needs, and then also plan for what we know from experience is going to happen from an infectious disease perspective, and then also again the severe trauma and mental health support that's going to be needed across all the population. And so, with you mentioning the disease that's happening already, and also the mass amounts of population in these dense areas, and also to make things more difficult, the local healthcare system in Gaza being attacked, you know, how is that impacting work there? You know, how does the infrastructure affect the aid that is coming in? Of course. Well, uh, so the UN agencies are reporting about 40% of the hospitals in Gaza and over 70% of the healthcare clinics have shut down because of damage or lack of fuel. So that comes back to supplies and uh, getting in or not getting in. Um, we also know that on average, 30 trucks a day have been entering. Yesterday, there was an increase. 102 trucks of supplies were able to get into Gaza. But we estimate just to have the basic needs met, 200 trucks need to be let in. That's only going to increase. So, you know, it's affecting um, also, again, with uh, people unable to shelter. Shelters actually are at four times their capacity. We also know that there are people who are out in the streets, and that just exacerbates the situation even more. And this is such a, diff- a difficult scenario to even picture about being able to establish civilian safe spaces, and especially with what that with Nathaniel was talking about earlier, the challenges of being able to provide mental health support, you know, like right there. But can you can you talk about the importance of establishing civilian safe spaces? Is that possible right now? It's, 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 it's critically important. I mean, you know, humanitarian aid workers, first of all, as Nathaniel mentioned, should not have to risk their lives to deliver food and medicines and essential supplies um, and provide medical care. And so we need those safe spaces to be able to take care of, of the civilians. Uh, and also, you know, humanitarian aid workers are experiencing their own loss and trauma. So, um, you know, it, it, it's got to be possible. Got about two minutes left here, Christine, but I want to ask, sure. uh, doing this humanitarian aid work, we've been talking about how incredibly challenging it is and how I want to ask how are workers supported, especially given the mental health toll that this takes? You know, what does their work look like? Yes, uh, you know, it's it's the question of who is taking care of everyone who's taking care of everyone else, taking care of the caregivers. So, um, you know, uh, what it looks like is just constant, constant, nonstop um, both personal loss and just seeing suffering and uh, everywhere. So, um, you know, it's really essential that we do need to get support for frontline health workers so they can take care of themselves so they can better take care of everyone else. We've got about a minute here, but we'd love to ask, you know, final thoughts on what do you hope our listeners take away from this conversation today? Yes. Uh, well, uh, we've learned more about the situation. I hope they take away that it's really essential to be prepared to coordinate um, and that trusted organizations work together to provide what essential needs are, whether they're health, food, water. Um, so there are great organizations out there to support. Um, also take away that we are seeing aid increasing getting into Gaza. So that's very important to know. 
And I'd also say to learn more about what AmeriCares is doing, please go to americares.org. Um, you can look at what we're doing in Israel and Gaza and also other emergencies. We're responding to seven currently right now around the world. Well, thank you so much for that, Christine. You've been listening to Christine Squires, who's AmeriCares president and CEO. Thank you so much for being on where we live today. Thank you so much. Coming up next, we're going to hear from Save the Children, an international NGO and humanitarian aid organization based here in Connecticut. This is where we live. Stay with us. we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut. Sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and Med Spa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org slash Pepin. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Today, we're talking with humanitarian aid organizations stationed in Gaza and Israel. These organizations play a critical role in providing support to countries going through humanitarian crises. Children are nearly half of Gaza's population. In the past three weeks, more children have been killed there than the total killed in conflicts globally in every year since 2019. That's according to Save the Children, an international non-governmental organization and humanitarian aid organization based here in Connecticut. And with us now is Yanti Shirepto, president and CEO of Save the Children. Thank you so much, Yanti, for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Catherine. And for our listeners, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live if you have any questions. So Yanti, I want to jump straight to it. Can you tell us about some of the unique challenges in helping children. What are you hearing from aid workers right now? Thanks, Catherine. Look, it is still really a humanitarian catastrophe, what we're seeing. We're seeing, of course, you know, 2 million, 2.3 million people, you know, in a very, very densely populated area with constant violence uh, still happening around them. So also for humanitarians like ourselves, we have 25 staff, 
in Gaza, local Gazans, they are still all safe and accounted for, uh, thank goodness. But for them to be able to deliver supplies to help people is incredibly difficult. It is unsafe. It is, we have, of course, not nearly enough supplies. And whatever supplies we have are difficult to distribute if you have no fuel. Um, so again, we are delivering supplies. We are helping people uh, where we can, in whatever way we can, but it is very compromised. And there, like you mentioned, there are so many different levels of need and supplies uh, for those in the West Bank and in Gaza. So how do you prioritize who and what to address first? <laughs> yeah, well, it's a constant uh, game of, you know, terrible choices, I have to say. Um, look, we we always uh, try to assess who are the most vulnerable here, who are the most in need. Is it the children sheltering in the south of uh, the Gaza Strip? Is it the children caught up in hospitals? Uh, is it the children in the refugee camps? Is it the children in, in the West Bank? Uh, it's a constant balancing act, and it's also a constant knowledge of what is available. Because you could say, ideally, we would help these kids, but if you can't get supplies in, you may have to wait. Whilst at the same time, in parallel, you can do something for the children uh, in the West Bank. So we have been continuing our work in the West Bank also, where we can, where that is still safe to do, uh, whilst also pushing to get more supplies into Gaza and having trucks near the border there, hoping that more will be let in as this crisis unfolds. And I think I want to get into the limitations a little bit more uh, in a little bit, but I would love to talk about first, you know, can you sort of walk us through the emotional and psychological pressure that children are facing and how do how do you address that? How do you start that conversation with them? It is incredible. Of course, you know, look, Children in, in Gaza and the West Bank and Israel are witnessing things that no child should ever witness. We see constant rockets uh, going all kinds of places. We see bombardments. They see fatalities. They see injuries. They see their parents and their family. They've lost parents, their families, uh, their, their school, their playmates, etc. What we do in situations like this, because this, of course, is not the only conflict where we see children impacted by, by violence, um, where we can, we really offer mental health and psychosocial support. We have specific pediatric counselors for that purpose. They try to work with children, give them the opportunity of play, of drawing, of arts, of dancing, of singing, to also start to process some of that trauma. Um, and I've seen this, look, in Gaza, this is currently incredibly difficult to do because of the uh, the unsafety. Uh, I've seen it happen in, in other crises. I was just in Ukraine a couple of weeks ago. I've seen it in Turkey and Syria earlier this year after the earthquake. When you see children drawing what they have really gone through, then it also becomes, you know, very vivid. When children start to draw dead bodies, when children start to draw homes being dis destructed, uh, then you realize what's actually going on, uh, you know, in these children's lives. And also what the longer term impact could be if we don't help them with uh, those kinds of services. And, you know, as an adult, we often forget that, you know, doing humanitarian aid work is incredibly challenging. So, Let's say a worker just witnessed what you described. You know, they see this, these children creating art, but it's it's their literal experiences of what they've seen on the ground. 
How are workers supported that way, especially given the mental health toll that this this does take, both from a physical standpoint and emotional, and also just like I mentioned earlier, seeing a child draw what they witnessed. Yeah, and it's it's incredibly upsetting, right? It's upsetting for us even uh, sitting here sometimes watching uh, those images um, unfold. Uh, for all of our humanitarian uh, colleagues, uh, particularly those who are very close to front lines like the one in Gaza, we do have mental health um, uh, support available, external counseling. We have particular protocols for that so that people don't spend, uh, that there is regular refreshment, that we make sure we understand the symptoms, to make sure that team leaders understand the symptoms. We tend to, we try to rotate people out where we can to give them rest. Of course, that is also one of the other issues that worries us in Gaza. The humanitarian workers there, health workers, have been at it 24-7 for the last three weeks, non-stop. So they are also exhausted, right? So it's really uh, incumbent on us to not only make sure that more supplies make it in, but that we are also able to surge additional uh, humanitarians in to, to help them. And so I think there's so much conversation that's been coming out because of what's been going on. And your organization has been providing support to Palestinian children since 1953. Can you mm. talk about how important is it to have an understanding of the deep and very complicated history of the area? It It is incredibly important. As you know, it's true in all uh, all of our work, you have to have trust of the of the local communities. Uh, all parties across across the piece, but in particular the local communities that we're seeking to help. Um, because of course, when you come in from the outside, of course there's going to be some wariness, some some mistrust, um, and that's completely understandable. Um, that's why in all of our work, whether it's here in the United States or whether it's in Gaza or anywhere else, we work mostly with local people, often people from that community too, because they... Are, they have that lived experience, they really understand it, so they can really give good input into what is actually needed here and how we should do it. But it also prevents a level of trust with that community who who, who then is much more, uh, you know, trusting actually to, to let us in and to let us to let us help. And, you know, with you saying to let to let the organization help them as you're building trust, do you get pushback or how has the reactions been or responses been? From the community, I mean, in in Gaza now, you mean? Sure. I mean, look at the moment, the situation is so dire in Gaza that any supplies, any support that we can give, assuming for a minute that is that it is relevant, as basics and necessities, water, food, medicine, baby kits, etc. Et you know, it, it will be you know very readily accepted. I'm sure, and at this level of scarcity, um, it is. You know, when you talk about longer term development work in education, in in healthcare, uh, in in child protection systems, then it becomes more sometimes more complicated because you really have to understand some of the root causes of why these problems have existed and sometimes have existed for a long, long time. Um, so that understanding is incredibly necessary before you can actually start to unpick what is actually helpful here and what is value add and also what is sustainable. Well, and you also mentioned scarcity, and we touched a little bit about the limitations and the difficulties of of getting these supplies there. So can you talk about uh, what other limitations are you facing right now in terms of how much aid 
you're able to able to provide. Um, for example, you mentioned you know lack of fuel is is a re- uh, is a uh, a challenge uh, to provide these supplies. You know what other challenges are you facing? Yeah, it is still the absolute volume of supplies. It was good to see the number of trucks allowed in go up steadily over the past couple of days, and we're grateful for that and absolutely needed, but still much more is required. So that's one uh, fuel, absolutely, because even when you get it in, if you have to drive it, if you have to bring it to people on your carrying it on your back, that's that is clearly that's taking too long and it doesn't get you very far. Um, also, human resources, as I said, we need more people in there to help do these supplies and do them safely. Um, and we'd love to get more people in who can also help starting to work with children on that very important psychosocial uh, support to help do sessions with them, to have them play, to have them start to process. But of course, we can only do that if we can search people in. So if they're allowed in and also if they can work safely. So Connecticut Mirror's Lisa Hagen recently reported that most Connecticut lawmakers are calling for a humanitarian pause for aid. Mm -hmm. And so for our listeners, um, according to the UN, a a humanitarian pause is a temporary secession of hostilities so that humanitarian aid can be carried out. A pause usually lasts for a defined period. It could be as short as a few hours and occurs in a specific area. Uh, can you respond to this, Yanti? And what are you hoping that this might look like? And what, what can it be of great help to the communities? Oh, absolutely. Look, in the short term, any pause um, is is welcome. Uh, we and uh, hundreds of others or, or other organizations have called for, for a ceasefire, which usually tends to be longer. It will also allow, of course, it should also include the the unconditional release of hostages. Let's not forget that there are children there as well as adults uh, still being held captive. Um, We want those hostages released unconditionally. We want humanitarian support to have humanitarians like us have unfettered access and bring in, yes, goods, yes, fuel, and yes, humanitarian uh, support as well. Now, whether we call it a humanitarian pause, whether we call it a ceasefire, the, yes, there are technical differences there uh, for for humanitarians like ours. Um, it's more important to actually have the pause and have that pause be longer than a few hours, be you know, a number of weeks to really assess a what is needed, what is needed the most, because even that at the moment is sometimes it's really hard to get our hands on the data required for that, um, but also start to really you know, bring injured children in particular, but bring injured people out of hospitals. How do we set up temporary healthcare facilities that are actually running, that have access to fuel, that have access to necessary supplies so that we can actually take care of people? We're particularly concerned that currently injured people are even are dying completely needlessly because all those basic necessities are lacking. Well, and that will take a bit longer than a few hours to set up. Right. And especially with what you just said, I'm wondering, you know, is the infrastructure there also a part of the challenge of either bringing the aid in or like you're saying just now, getting people out of hospitals? And what does that look like? I think it's incredibly uh, difficult and compromised. And as I said, because we don't really have, you know, tremendous access to to the right data. I mean, our our 25 colleagues are incredibly busy trying to stay alive, trying to keep their families safe and trying to bring whatever supplies we have to people in need. 
um, really understanding what the infrastructure looks like, which desalination plants need to get back up and running so that there's access to clean water so that we don't have to continue to truck it in, which is incredibly, you know, inefficient and, and wasteful, essentially. So an, a number of, so in terms of infrastructure, how many hospitals still have the ability to run or are they completely beyond repair? How many shelter uh, is there actually available for people to, to, to shelter for a prolonged period of time? At the moment, we have thousands of people crammed into shelters that had maybe the capacity for couple dozen or a couple of hundred and again those are that, that those are situations that are very hard to sustain for longer than a couple of days and so we've talked a lot about mental health as well for children for adults for the aid workers here do you see addressing the trauma and the mental health needs as an equal sort of priority to providing other care i know you mentioned water we mentioned medical and i know those were there's those are probably aid that we think of first, um, but what about mental health? What do you think about that? Look, we think it's incredibly important. People always think about immediate life saving, and of course that includes water and medicine and, and food at, at, at some level, right? Um, as well as ultimate shelter. If you if you don't have a roof over your head, if you don't have access to water, it's 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 over pretty pretty quickly. But for us, mental health, psychosocial support for children to have access to some level of education is also life-saving. Maybe not today, but certainly for tomorrow. And children tell us that themselves. Whenever we ask kids, not just in Gaza, but anywhere in the world in crises, whether they're man-made or, or natural crises, they, and we ask them, what do you need? What do you miss the most? They will tell us education. Hmm. Does that surprise you? Well, for some people that's surprising. They think, really? School? Is that the first thing? But for children, that is a sense of normalcy of structure the ability to play and to be with their peers with their playmates that is incredibly important for children's well-being and for parents as well just to have the ability to have their kids play and be happy even if even if it is for a little bit that is also good for parents they have the opportunity to breathe a little and to assess actually what's you know what, what's to come next well and then what's to come next speaking of which is um what do you think the long-term recovery is going to look like in this region? Look, it is it is really hard. We are not uh, clearly we are not politicians. Humanitarians always rush in when you know political solutions ultimately have failed uh, to to produce sustainable solutions, and and then we're literally picking up the pieces. Um, it's it's definitely going to be a long-term recovery. We've seen that in earlier flare-ups of this particular crisis, of course, twenty fourteen. You know, that was taking years, um, not only because of the mental health and trauma, but because of physical injuries, infrastructure rebuild. So all of that will be necessary here. But of course, um, in this case, in, in most conflicts, the absence of a, of a longer term sustainable political solutions is, is critical. And with that mindset, too, Unfortunately, this is not the only area in the world that is facing a humanitarian crisis. Can you talk mm. about the organization's efforts in other places in the Middle, Middle East as well as Ukraine? Of course. Uh, look, Save the Children works in over 100 countries. And, and sadly, we've seen a number of conflicts and a number of children living in conflict-affected areas go up massively over these past couple of years. So, of course, that concerns us. Also knowing that these conflicts in and of themselves have a knock-on effect on children in other places. 
Ukraine is a very evident example. Yes, it it, it also impacted food prices, the availability of grain, the availability of fertilizer, and that's why children in Africa, in Afghanistan, also ended up with lower food rations or and, and with fewer. Um, so that is a concern. Clearly, this crisis as well, a knock-on effect on the global economy, on, on stability in the region, massively concerns us. Our teams in, in Lebanon and Egypt and Syria are already looking at preparedness plans there. So it worries us also because in the end, the level of available humanitarian funding is, is not going to go up by the amount of people in need. Um, and that, so that's what we're seeing across across the world. Even before this particular crisis hit us, um, the gap between what is needed and what is available wide has widened over the last three years. So that's what we see. We see millions of people on the brink of starvation. We'll have millions of children not only being out of education, out of school for a long, long time, but also really suffering and dying needlessly. And for those who may be interested in helping, is there a place or a website that they can go check out and get more information from? That would be great. Uh, SaveTheChildren.org is our website. There's regular updates there of on this crisis, but on, on, on a lot of other crises and, and our long, longer term development work. Um, you can see how you can take action how you can connect or reach out to your local uh, congressmen and women. Um, and if you uh, want to donate, that's also a place where you can do it. It also shows a number of organizations uh, in, in both um, uh, Israel and, uh, and uh, Gaza uh, that we work with and where you can, where you can also donate if, if you wish. Yanti Shirapto, who's the president and CEO of Save the Children. Thank you so much for being here today. We appreciate your time and your work. Thank you very much. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening.